So welcome to episode 11 of the Privileged Man podcast with Dr. Joy Shavirian. Joy is a Jungian psychoanalyst, psychotherapist and supervisor. And in 2015, Joy authored the book, Boarding School Syndrome, where she describes common symptoms suffered by those affected by early boarding after extensive research with ex-boarders in psychotherapy and in semi-structured interviews. Since the release of the book, Joy has been invited on Channel 4 News and LBC Radio, and her book has been reviewed favourably in the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, and the Sunday Times, to name just a few. Spending time with Joy was an enlightening experience, and I'm extremely grateful for her time and passion around a subject not often talked about, and as such, widely misunderstood. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review and share episodes on your social channels. The more the podcast is listened to, the bigger the impact. And there are men out there who have listened to these podcasts as a first inspiring point to take huge steps of growth in their lives. So a big thank you for listening and an even bigger thank you for supporting. Now, on to the main event. Okay, so well, Joy, welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much, Pete, for inviting me. That's a pleasure, real honour. You've written a book, which I'll put up here, called Boarding School Syndrome, The Psychological Trauma of the Privileged Child, which sets this podcast up nicely. But before we kick on, I just wanted to start by reading a short but important paragraph to balance things out. It's important to acknowledge that some people did enjoy their boarding school experience, which surpasses the line of, it never did me any harm and excelled at sports, music, art, etc, etc. And others remember maybe an inspiring motivational teacher, actually like I do. And um, many of those who enjoyed boarding were those who first boarded when they were 13 or over. And indeed, those who went at 16 often enjoyed the social and educational aspects of boarding. However, in your experience, this was the minority. So Joy, Please explain to our listeners how you came to see this was the minority and how you began to recognise that boarding school syndrome existed. I had been working as a psychotherapist for a long time, really. And a number of my patients, like other people's patients, were ex-boarders. And we used to go past this and not take a great deal of attention to it. You know, people went to a grammar school, went to a boarding school. And sometimes those who've been to boarding school have got tremendous panache when they come in. You know, they've got a great polish. They've come because they're depressed, but you'd never know it. Because they're really good at hiding their suffering. And it was in about 1990, I had a man came to me for depression. And in the first two weeks of the therapy, he immediately engaged and poured out the trauma of going to boarding school when he was eight. Uh, He was the son in a family of daughters, and he had been groomed for this. It was a great privilege. He was the only one going to boarding school. So when he arrived, the shock and horror of actually that he was being left there was enormous, and it had haunted the rest of his life, the things that happened to him there, and the loss of his family. And that was the thing that really got me interested. So then I realised, started thinking about it, listening to my patients and to my colleagues' patients when they talked in peer supervision, and we discussed patients. And often in passing, someone would say, well, he went to boarding school, or she went to boarding school. And that was it. Nobody took any notice beyond that. 
the fact that they were really lonely or disturbed was never attributed to the fact that they'd had been traumatized as children. So in my book, I decided to analyze exactly what this is made up of. And we needed a name for this because we need to be able to identify that this is not just an individual person. What I find with ex-boarders now when they write to me is the relief to know that they weren't the only one because mm. most people who suffered at school are ashamed. They're ashamed because they should have done well and, you know, everybody does well. They see everyone around them, you know, thriving and they're not and they think they're the only one until mm. they meet other people who also suffered in the same way. I came to realize this was really important that we as therapists needed to be able to talk about it, but actually as a society, we also need to be able to talk about the suffering inflicted on children going away from their home when they're very, very young. So going away from home when they're really young is a traumatic event. They lose everything that's familiar. They lose their home, their parents, their toys, their siblings, their bed, the food that's familiar. They child loses everything. And so when I'd finished my book, I came up with this term boarding school syndrome. I didn't really quite know where it came from, but there's a lot of us discussing things around and it just seemed to be the right thing. And I kind of thought, I can't call it this. I wrote an article in 2011 when it's the first time I used it. And I thought, I can't actually call it a syndrome. And then I thought, it is because a syndrome is a pattern of ways of relating. It isn't necessarily about disease. It's a pattern of ways of being that can be identified. And this was very common with ex-boarders, that you could identify problems with intimacy, difficulty in relationships as, as adults, having very often in their 20s, having a great time, going off and, you know, escaping the prison of boarding school. And then when the children get to the age they were sent away, so six, seven, eight, quite common, Some and girls often have gone later, but not always, and they notice how very young their children are at that age, and then they start to feel, not really knowing what it is that's hitting them, depressed or upset or very angry. And so we identify this over time. So what I've come up with, I mean, this, I've been working in this field for a very long time now. And when I wrote the book, I wanted to analyze this, what I call the anatomy of the trauma. But actually, it's multiple traumas. And so, boarding school syndrome is made up of abandonment first. The child is initially traumatized by being abandoned. They, even if the child says they chose it, because parents often you know, give them the option, you know, would you like to go to this school? It seems really nice. They, so they're abandoned and they're left with strangers. And I often talk about stranger danger. The only time parents leave their children with strangers is when they leave them in a boarding school and they've no idea what those people are like. They're charming to the parents, but they can be for an hour or two. But very often to the children, they're not. And they certainly weren't in the past. I hope it's better now. So it's what I call an ABCD of boarding school syndrome. Abandonment, bereavement, captivity. And the final result of that is disassociation. Mm. 
So the child is abandoned, first of all, which is the first trauma, to realise, actually, my mother's leaving me. My father's leaving me. Parents don't do that, but they'll come back for me. And they come back for an exit, maybe after three weeks or something like that. And you can't really tell them what happened because there's too much. And anyway, you haven't got the words for it, especially if you're six or seven or eight or 13 even. Would you say that that is still the case now with the flexi boarding system, that they still feel that sense of abandonment, even though perhaps it's not quite as severe as it used to be in terms of the time lapses? I think so, because the main thing is you're not living at home. And mm. especially for prep school children, it is inconceivable because they're so little. They haven't got one person to care for them, one person to give them words for their feelings, to help them understand when they're suffering, when they're crying. You know, when a baby is very little, you nurture it and you speak to it like parents babble with their babies. And, you know, you often see a mother and baby, well, a lot of research has been done to this, the reaction and the baby smiles, mother smiles back, baby learns. It's, it's delightful because people are delighted in it. And as your children grow, it's the same. We delight in our children, not everyone. This is not to idealise all homes, you know, because there's some very difficult homes. But generally for a child, home is best. And so what the child loses is all of that. And then the bereavement comes in because that's the second trauma. It's the repetition. So when there's an exiat and you're taken back to school, you suddenly realise they're not come to rescue me, that this is going to go on and on. So that point, I think the child goes into mourning. We call it homesickness, but I don't think that's an adequate term because they are sick because they're missing home. But that's treated usually as you'll get over it. Just go and do some sport or music. Get on, play with the other kids. You'll be fine. Because it's called the um, settling in period, right? That, that landed for me. I was actually in a men's circle with Piers Cross talking about this period. And uh, he talked about, don't worry, it's a time when they'll just settle in. And actually for me, what that brought back was how, you know, my learned sense of surviving and my sense of effectively shutting down. And that's what I, I went from a sensitive boy and then had to effectively shut down to survive. Yes, absolutely. And that's exactly it. And it's that shutting down. It's the emotional shutting down. It's the shutting down on your feelings. And mm. the feelings are grief. You've lost everything and you're never going to get it back, actually. The relationship with parents is very rarely ever retrieved fully because you can't get that time back. So, and the child is captive, that's the C. So as well as that terrible loss and that shutting down, you then are captive and you have to abide by rules which are often incomprehensible. Why shouldn't a child run in a corridor? You know, life's fun. And suddenly life is not fun. You can't be spontaneous. Don't walk on the grass. You get beaten for walking on the grass. Crazy. I mean, that's in the past. I don't think children get beaten for walking on grass now. I hope not. But many of the people who come to us had that experience because they're, you know, this is, it's the recent past. It's not that long. But the basic abandonment and bereavement, I think, even though we have mobile phones now, and even though children can be in touch with their parents, they're not living with them. 
the parents can't tell if they're being bullied because there's certain things you can tell and some things you can't tell. And so the child's captive for the time that they're at the school. It sounds to someone maybe who's just listening for the first time, we've just talked about how the schools have a sense of being a prison. They're abandoned. Children are abandoned. Children are bereaved and they're held in captivity. And it all leads to disassociation. To someone who's worked for 15, 20 years to get their children into these schools, it might be extremely triggering to hear, if not a hard pass and they've already stopped listening. And if they haven't, I would just ask them to like open up and just go go with this because it's really important to understand that whilst you've been working in this field for a long time, this is still very much scratching the surface of society and scratching the surface of the conversation that whilst it's coming more mainstream and we all know through politically it's becoming more mainstream, the actual talking of the effects of boarding are still little known in the mainstream. And I think that when you just talk about those really staggering things that happen to children, and then we talk about the leadership within our society in terms of politics and in terms of business, the effects of what have happened sees us, the effects of what's happened to these men and women. When we start to understand this, we start to see the effects it's actually having on society as a whole. And I think that that is just something that is just beginning to open up. I mean, I, I know it comes through in quite a lot of angry headlines in newspapers, but actually understanding where this trauma comes from is going to lead to, I guess, more empathy. And that's what I'm trying to do, is trying to expose and to bring more empathy to this conversation bring more empathy to understand why our leaders are behaving the way that they do. Because the men who come to me, the men who are, who are attracted to this conversation, want to understand why they are the way they are and why they're treating people the way that they do. And I think within the boarding school syndrome and the ABCD, brilliantly simple way of putting it, uh, there are a lot of answers. And I'm sure, I don't know if people will... <laughs> Do you generally find that people get closer to one of the letters, i.e. get closer to abandonment, or do they feel all of it? Not all at once, but all of it affects the disassociation is what people come with. What you're talking about is shutting down. And so it takes a long time to gradually work through it. And the abandonment is possibly the most difficult thing to face because it feels like a betrayal by your parents. They intended well for you. And I want to say this for parents because I think that's what you're saying is very difficult for someone who's worked really hard because they want the best for their children. And most parents do. And they send them to boarding school because in this society, it is considered the pinnacle of success to send your child to boarding school or for your child to be in a boarding school. And they should get a really good life out of that. And many do. But I think the message I always have for parents is listen to your children. First of all, though, they have to listen to themselves if they went to boarding school. When you're talking about empathy, the first person to have empathy is for yourself. What was it actually like for you? Do you remember the first day you went? 
And that first day is often the beginning of the most traumatic memories. Many very famous authors have written about that first day. Like I quote in my book, Andrew Motion, for example, going to a school where his grandfather was friends with the head teacher. The grandfather didn't know he grew canes for beating the children in the garden. But, you know, he's a charming man. He came to dinner and then he was left there. It was terrible and this man was awful, but the parents thought he was really nice. And so the children are left in the care of these sort of strangers. So what I think is really important for parents is to listen to their children. Because a lot of parents in the past didn't. Like somebody who knew they were going to be abused next term, for example, tried to tell their parents, there's a really bad teacher here, he does bad things. Mm. And, and he just knew it. And his parents didn't listen. Parents often don't listen. If your child is unhappy and they tell you something, don't brush it off. Listen to it. And it's very hard when you were at school because you say, well, I just got on with that old chap. You'll be all right. It makes a man of you. And actually, it doesn't make a man of you. It makes a man with a boy locked up inside that never mm. gets out, stays kept. Yeah. I mean, there's great point i consider myself very lucky like that because from my prep school i went to a public school that my parents thought was great and thought was right for me and they thought they were making the right decision but within weeks of being there i knew it was not right and then i was bullied mercilessly uh, for about eight weeks and then i fronted up to my parents i remember going back driving back and thankfully they listened and made a decision to take me out of the school and put me into another one where I really flourished in terms of my, because I was one of those guys who was very sporty and I was like going to a sports academy for me underneath it all. And I talked on other podcasts about this is my dyslexia and how really, really difficult it was for me to survive academically. And that created all sorts of underlying chronic anxiety that surfaced in my early thirties. But I saw and heard and still do to this day when I talk to, to people about it, how parents didn't listen and how they look back on their school life and almost don't want to think about it, almost don't want to go there completely detached from the experience so that they can't really feel how traumatic with a small T, how the aggregates of how you described it as multiple traumas they don't want to associate with, but eventually it comes... <laughs> Maybe that's not for everyone, but a lot of this does bubble up in our 30s and 40s. Now, I thought it's really, really interesting, and 50s actually, and probably beyond. But I thought it was really interesting how you said when people begin to have children and they get to the age that they were when they went to boarding school. I've heard this multiple times. I mean, my friends, I'm early 40s now, and most of my friends have got kids between sort of four and 13, 14, something like that. And that's what is said quite a lot. I just couldn't do it. How could I have been sent away at like seven years old, eight years old? It's just, it makes them shiver again, but that association and, and not really wanting to go there and going into the work. If you could, could you just explain a little bit about your practice and, and how a boarder first goes into this? Like someone who is say mid forties, mid fifties, something like that, suddenly realizes by listening to this podcast, oh, that's me. Now what? 
it takes a very courageous step, that initial step to ask for help, because you never did, and you couldn't. It's often desperation. In a marriage, it's often the partner, usually the wife, that sends the husband, um, or the male partner being sent by the female partner. And sometimes people come and say, my wife says I can't talk about my feelings. I can't talk about feelings. That's the beginning of it, because it's about intimacy. So very often that's or another way is a marriage is on the rocks. You know, people just can't continue with this marriage or relationship. They're desperate or they hit depression and don't know why. And the GP says, look, I think maybe you could do with some therapy. And so they might come for therapy, not really quite knowing why. But asking for it, some people do ask for it nowadays, of course, because people know more about this. They look on the internet and they find that there are people like me and Nick Duffel and people like that, and a whole lot of uh, people who are now specialising as therapists working with exporters. So then they come and we deal with what's happening in the present and why it feels like it does. But I'm always listening for what was it like in the past as well. Then quite often I ask that question, do you remember the first day at boarding school? That doesn't always evoke anything at first, but very, very gradually. And it's a very slow, gradual process. Being able to tell someone about that abusive teacher, the child that bullied you all the time when you were at school, it made your life a misery, the terrible things that happened in the dormitory to you or to somebody else, these stories gradually emerge and we can make sense of them and very gradually put them into the past. Mm. Because if they're locked in that kind of chest that's kept like literally locked in your chest or locked in that psychological chest where school is now forgotten, there's horrible things that happened at school are now forgotten, we have to gradually get them out and have a look at them. And then once they've been looked at and thought about and acknowledged that this shouldn't have happened, it was really awful, People begin to reconcile themselves and have empathy. Empathy for yourself means you Mm -hmm. can have empathy for other people. But first you have to find it for yourself, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When we're doing our men's circles, I think there's a core underlying answer to the majority of problems in life. And uh, empathy is one word that comes up and the other one is self-love and actually learning to sort of reparent, if you like, our inner child. And to lots of boarding school men, that may sound completely woo-woo and <laughs> and a bit like out there. But ultimately, if we can't love ourselves, we can't really love other people fully, and therefore our relationships break down. So, if, And, you know, I talk to a lot of men who are in the stage of a rocky relationship, are thinking about ending or they're in a space where they're thinking about ending the relationship. And I, I it normally comes out with a, my wife's like this, my partner's like this, and I just can't deal with her any longer. And I would then sort of ask, tend to ask some fairly searching questions about what they've done to look at their own self, because there is no hope for the relationship if we don't have a look at our own selves first. And it tends to be that that hasn't been looked at. We're always very good as ex-boarders of, of blaming 
at seeing the problem in others and and not necessarily going internally because going internally is incredibly uncomfortable. That's my experience and it's also what brought me to my end point of, I guess, where I had my breakthrough. I don't like to say breakdown because it really was a breakthrough in my life in 2016 when I realized and I was introduced to the words personal responsibility. And I realized that I could create whatever I wanted to create. And I didn't realize that because I was so disempowered by effectively having to be part of the system. That's what I was. I was a soldier of the system. And I didn't recognize until I was 34 years old that actually... I didn't need to take that role. I didn't need to take that identity. And for someone with dyslexia, being a soldier of the system was a completely unnatural place to be and a very and a place of great struggle. Now, that whole idea of being a soldier of the system is an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Because that mm. originally is what you were trained to be in one way or another. And I think those schools are still doing that. So it's important and to allow that. It, they're very masculine institutions, boarding schools, girls' boarding schools, as well as boys. There's not much of the feminine about them. And what you're talking about, I think, is allowing that part of your because we're all kind of a mixture of masculine, feminine sort of elements. And it's allowing what is attributed to the female characteristics to emerge. But in an all-single-sex boarding school, those attributes are attributed out there to the other, to women. To women are like this, and we are the soldiers of the system, as you say, I love that expression. And women are other, and they're scary, and women are terrifying because they abandon you, they betray you. The first wound is the fact that the mother let me go. If a mother can abandon you, then if you love anybody, they can abandon you. So a lot of ex-boarding school men seem to cut off at the point at which someone becomes really important to them because unconsciously they're worried that they're going to be abandoned. So you can't invest everything in one person. So the wife or partner, female, gets blamed, gets punished for what the mother did unconsciously the whole thing is unconscious that she's not safe because i love her that's quite important with women i think it's a bit different i think that women very often attach very powerfully i have often wondered about this i don't know if it's right or not but i wonder if there's something about being in a female institution which exposes i mean there's brutal very many female boarding schools are brutal especially convents when I did research in my book, a lot of the stories I heard were about that kind of abuse that is very particularly female. Uh, the nuns in boarding schools can be so sadistic. So whereas in boys' schools you've got beatings, and um, you've got beatings in girls' schools too, so it all happens in both. But the female institutions have a different, I think, sort of take on ill treatment of children. And a lot of children were singled out for verbal abuse. I mean, physical abuse, people being pushed downstairs by a teacher. There are many stories about that, but I think it's slightly different. And I think that one of the things that happens in girls' schools that I don't think happens in boys' schools, in some girls' prep schools, is the whole thing about a crush, a pash. 
in some schools that I've heard of, girls were encouraged to nurture other girls. So the older girl would have a younger girl that she tucked up in bed, for example, in some schools. Some people who were in the same school as their sister, I remember hearing this story at a conference, actually, somebody told me this. She used to creep along the corridor and get into bed with her sister. Now, most schools, that's absolutely taboo. Boys or girls schools, that doesn't happen. But you know, there's a little bit of threads of nurturing between the children. And in boys' schools, it more quickly turns sexual, I think. But I think in girls' schools, it's the same. So sometimes there's a real bonding in the peer group, which sustains people. And this is not to say it's it's better, but it's just different. So girls' mm. friendships, particularly, I mean, boys' friendships too. Some Some men stay friends with people they went to school with. But girls are more inclined to have a real group of girls they were at school with. Some people had horrendous experiences and never went back there. Mm, really interesting. Really interesting. A couple of interesting points there. So a couple of quotes for the from your book. Schools reflect the ethos of the society that they serve. And this is apparent in the history of girls boarding schools. They were adapted from long, the long-lasting tradition of boys' boarding schools and therefore were based on masculine principles. So this really fascinates me, just in general, and I've sort of unpacked this a little bit on other podcasts, but the, this masculine and feminine energy is something that has been sort of almost shamed and vilified to talk about. But I think it's really important to do so because there's this, this very gray area where the man is trying to be everything to everyone and where in my own opinion we're living in this uh, hyper masculine world where women are trying everything to keep up with men but yet biologically are the ones who are bringing children into the world and that cannot be anything but the most important thing that any human does in their existence and yet it's still expected that they are supposed to go back to work, that they're supposed to be the CEO and that they can be everything and everything to everyone. And how many times have I seen this result in burnout and result in rela- relationships that absolutely were, were, were great, but now there's this sense of failure that women feel in and around the early years of motherhood and that they're not keeping up and they've got to get back to work and all of these kind of things. So this fascinates me a lot, this whole sort of emphasis and the difficulty in modern the modern world between talking about the masculine and the feminine. So I guess the question I have for you is, can you unpack a gaze in the, in the modern day what type of woman a boarding school is looking to produce? Because I'm a bit confused by it. Well, in the modern day, I think it's very different from the history. We're talking about the days when boarding schools were separate sex and the girls were kept in boarding schools to stay pure and chaste until they met this handsome prince that was in the other school, in the boys' school, who would come along and um, take them and make them a wife and, and she could you know, nurture them and, and sew a lot and <laughs> run a house. And girls were educated that it was, this is my generation, there are women who went to boarding schools who were not allowed to be too intelligent. You mustn't be intelligent because you mustn't be more intelligent than a man. 
And that I quote that from someone in my book, I, an interview with a, a father who said of his daughter, well, I wanted to be intelligent, but not too intelligent. Wasn't that the headmaster of Rodine? It of was, Rodine. that's right. And yeah. it was quoted in Gathorn Hardy, I think. Yeah, incredible. So it was really common. And I also quote Judith Oakley there, who, who writes about her own boarding school experiences. And she was very bright. And she was advised by her tutors at school that actually, you know, you shouldn't go to university. You'll take a place that, you know, could be had by a man. And she did eventually go. But, you know, what odds women were working against then? So schools are very different now. I think they're very much more encouraging of women's intelligence and uh, nurturing of that. I mean, I don't know a huge amount about the schools now. And the abuse that girls are getting in schools now is much more because they're mixed schools and we've got social media and they're judged on their the boys and the girls mixed together and that the girls will be rated according to how attractive they are whether mm. they will have sex or if they've had sex then they're a slag awful stuff really mm. really making it a minefield for girls in boarding school now but mm. a lot of women you know manage it and come through that I think we'll hear more about this in a few years when the younger people who have grown up with that, with social media, will be able to tell us what it was like for them mm. because at the moment they're living it. Mm. So um, It's a different experience, isn't it? Yes, it's complicated, It's and, yeah. but it's not great either way because, you know, it's very hard for parents to protect children. That's the point, mm. I think. So I've got a quote here for you, Joy. In your from your book, you said rather than beatings that took place in boys' schools, shame was commonly used to control girls. Girls were expected to show contrition by humility, apologetic stunts, downcast eyes, possibly tears of defeat, and often in front of the entire school. And I think, you know, many would argue this is a thing of the past, but I'm also told that this hasn't totally gone away. And so whilst most of the listeners are in their 30s, 40s, 50s and, and, and older, they're going to be surrounding themselves with women who went to schools in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So this shame that was put upon girls at the time, how does that manifest in women's adult lives? And how, does, how can a man who's listening to this be more empathetic or understand that his behavior towards his wife when by whatever re for whatever reason he finds himself shaming his wife or his partner or his sister or his mum or whatever and he doesn't understand the reaction that he gets how can i guess this understanding that these girls were shamed so cruelly at school how can they see the effects in in later life well, I think shame is not specifically just for girls because everyone who went to boarding school has got some terrible guilt. And women do kind of carry the guilt and very often apologise a lot and are often shamed and easily shamed. Men also carry terrible shame. And if both partners went to boarding school, it really plays out. I think one of the things that people are very frightened of who went to boarding school is aggression. So in a marriage or partnership, but that's a heterosexual partnership because that's what we're talking about, it seems, today, really. I don't know how this plays out in gay partnerships, 
perhaps differently. But what we're talking about is how women easily feel shamed, but they also feel guilt. So there's a lot of apologizing. And I think men do too, but men close it in more. Whereas women just behave in a way that's almost apologizing for their existence sometimes because of this, Mm. because of the shaming. But the shame is deep and what you learn, because it's also the thing about food and girls' table manners, which is also something I think I wrote about in the book, the the idea that girls learned to be self-effacing. That can be infuriating if you live with someone, if they're always being self-effacing. But often, aggression is not allowed. The thing about teenagers when they live at home is they often become very aggressive, difficult, and they reject their parents and they hate them and they love them. I hate you, I love you is perfectly normal. I hate you, I love you in a marriage is very difficult for the ex-border because they never did that with their parents because they had to be nice when they went home. So often what happens in a marriage is that it's not really honest. So people are living alongside each other often in a brother-sister relationship. Sex is difficult because it's intimate and that could really encourage people to really love each other. But then you might abandon me. You'll certainly abandon me if you see what a bad person I am because I carry all this shame and guilt for whatever it was that happened in the school. It's just so on point. I've almost got like, you know, tears welling up because I can feel, not just for myself and my past relationships, but for so many men and women out there like who I come into contact with and who I have these conversations with and they just don't understand why their relationships are breaking down or why they're behaving the way that they do. And there is just this level where there is just such dishonesty. And it's not like, hey, I've gone and done things that we would see as being dishonest in a in a sort of societal way, like being cheated on or whatever. But it's just that level, underscoring level of we're not being honest with each other about the level of our intimacy in our relationship and we're not doing anything about it. And generally that manifests in bigger blowouts which then end relationships which can be unnecessary if the the honesty of come on darling we've got to go and work on our relationship because i'm not feeling as though there's any intimacy in it at the moment but it's almost impossible i can just feel in all the work that i've done on myself over the years i can almost feel the difficulty that so many people, even in that way, just saying that out loud, it still feels awkward. It still would feel awkward, even though me and my wife do a lot of work together and she's a coach and she, you know, she works on herself daily. So we live in a personal development household, but it's still not comfortable. But within that discomfort is where the magic happens. And I don't think we're ever really taught that, I think that's sort of, and not, not actually physically beaten out of us, but I think it is beaten out of us, as you've just said, to be unemotional and to be sort of so regulated about things that 
as humans, we don't want to feel necessarily that regulated about. It's really important. You know, my emotion and my emotional state and my sense of love for you is important. I want to talk about it, but I find it impossible to talk about. I think there's something they're linked to shame and guilt about people are often ashamed because they feel angry. Because in boarding school, you weren't allowed to feel angry. You you had to cut off your feelings. So there's a sort of pretense that goes on. And I think sex is a really important part of that because a lot of men are scared of being too aggressive in sex. And uh, maybe the women actually want that um, in a good way, you know, that that it's a meeting. Aggression is often a meeting, not just sex. But if you have a row with someone, you're actually coming from the heart and saying what you feel. Whereas if you're disassociated from that child that wasn't allowed to cry, you can't cry out in any way. You can't be angry. You can't be all of who you are. And I think what you're talking about here is just being all of who you are. And actually, it's all right. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You're okay. I think mm. that's that's the message for people often that that mm. only comes through with a lot of like what you're talking about work really, and especially because of boarding school, and women more keep their anger to themselves. I think keep their guilt. They feel guilty. If you really knew me, you'd know how bad I am. So I have to hide that from you. You wouldn't love me if you really knew. And of course, in a marriage, what you do is you take your emotional clothes off, you know, in every sense. If you do that really, then the person can know you and love you. But if you keep them on, then there's a hidden part. And then I think particularly with women, but, uh, you know, it does happen with men, the bit that they can control and take out, take action on is, you know, coming back to is the food thing and how eating comes into this sense of being angry with the world or being angry with the decisions that someone else has made for us and the only thing that they can control and the way that they're going to punish you is through some form of disordered eating does that make sense absolutely it's so common and i think it's all sorts of disordered eating because in boarding school certainly in the past it was I mean, it is different now because people actually get decent food most of the time and can help themselves when they want food. But in the past, there was often horrible food. There was competition for food. People would grab food off each other's plates. I often tell this story of how girls would have to ask for, if they wanted the butter, say, they would have to turn to their neighbour and say, would you like the butter? And if the neighbour didn't offer them the butter and said, no, thank you, and didn't say, but would you, because that's what they're supposed to do, you didn't get any butter, because you couldn't say, can you pass me the butter? Straight. So girls learned sideways ways of communicating. They were mm. trained in school. I don't know if boys had that. I doubt it. I haven't come across that. What boys did is, the te- and this is girls too, that awful thing of getting a plate of food and someone takes the best food off your plate because you're little and they give you their rubbish they don't want. And you're left with this. And this, so many girls have told me that story. Yeah, interesting. It takes me back to some pretty aggressive moves in the school dining room. And also the shaming, not finishing food. I mean, I just spoke to my father about being eight years old and being left in the dining room 
until three o'clock in the afternoon, having started lunch at 12, to finish his plate because he hasn't had a piece of white fish since leaving school. It's just so entrenched in that moment for him that, you know, of, of eating that, I think it was a boiled piece of probably off fish. I mean, that's torture, isn't it? It's horrible. It is torture and it's traumatizing. I think, again, we come back to this sort of sense of, oh, that, what do you mean that's traumatic? You know, going to war is traumatic and, you know, rape and murder is traumatic. And yes, they are truly traumatic and major traumatic incidents. But also these kind of aggregated, normalized neglect, if you like, sense of sense of traumas that have happened in the past. It is traumatic. And I just want to sort of empathize with people who have had parents who have gone through this, through such situations, because it's not just the individual who suffers, it's the whole ecosystem around them, friends, family, work, all of it. You know, and it is something that I talk about a lot when men come to me and ask about the privileged man and, you know, what we do. And I say, well, what men recognise when they actually start to come out of the isolation of thought is that it's not just them who feels the release and the it's the wives, it's the children, it's the guys at work that they work with because there is this sense of lightness that comes out of maybe a long-lasting, rather chronic feeling of, of depression that has been built up over many, many years. And as you said earlier, it's really like, this may feel uncomfortable. It may, you know, coming back to the line of, it never did me any harm. It really takes someone ultimately very courageous to just pull back the curtains and go, well, what if it did? I just want to say that what happened to your father was abuse. It's interfering with his appetite. And it is traumatic because a trauma means wound. And it was wounding. It was mortally wounding for an eight-year-old child. You can't compare suffering. That is terrible suffering by insensitive adults who override the child's appetite. And that's what boarding school does for boys and for girls. It overrides the appetite of the child in every sense. When you have children, you attune to the children. Like you're talking about your parents listened to you when you were unhappy at boarding school. and if a child doesn't like white fish, it's very common, actually, or anything else. Then you say, okay, leave it, try it another time. No big deal. But it's like making big deals and battles out of things that don't need to be battles. So the child's appetites are gradually subsumed under the system. This is the bit that we started at the beginning with, I think. You know, the thing about our leaders Their appetites were damaged at that early age. The lack of empathy in that means that there's a lack of empathy within, empathy for yourself, empathy for the other. So Mm. I think it'll, anyway, I think we've come probably full circle. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. It's very important. So uh, one final question, Joy, is if you were to be magically put in charge of policy and you you had all the power of, What would you do to, I guess, bring this to the larger attention of society? But also, what would you actually practically do to 
make this a thing of the past? It's very different now. Well, first of all, probably boarding at 16 is probably reasonable and quite good, you know, for some kids. Early boarding, I think really for most children, one or two people have said to me, early boarding probably was better than their home. But for most people, home is better. So it's terribly difficult because I think anything you say, you can also see the other side of. But yeah, I mean, boarding schools shouldn't have charitable status. They're not charities. And that's one of the things I think would lessen the impact. Also, they are so ridiculously expensive. They'll price themselves out of the market and already have really because the children that are coming now, a lot of them are from abroad, you know, places like China, Japan, all sorts of countries send their children. They want a British education. So what would I do policy-wise? It's a big, big ask, that, isn't it? I'd like everyone to know that you should listen to children. And if you listen to children, you wouldn't send them to boarding school. You wouldn't send them away. How many children actually want to go? Once they get past Hogwarts, they think it's Hogwarts and it's not. So I think certainly early boarding shouldn't be anymore. I don't think we need early boarding. But you could say all boarding up to 16 is early boarding. So that's not yeah. a very clear answer to you. I'm very woolly on that. I'm glad I don't have to make policy. because. <laughs> but if I did, the main thing I think is about listening to children. Children shouldn't be hungry. Children shouldn't be in boarding schools. So policy-wise, I think that would be the priority, to really yeah. think who's suffering in this society and why. And it's children so often at all levels. Mm, absolutely. And all you have to do is watch the TV at the moment and go, why are the children suffering? And it, because to most human beings who are actually in touch with any kind of sense of themselves, what is happening in Gaza is absolutely appalling. But yet, it's somehow children are being put right at the bottom of the care list. It's, it's terrible. I think you're right. But it's true in society, they're the collateral damage. Mm. In society, why are children in Britain today hungry? It shouldn't be. You know that, and that brings it home more, doesn't it? I suppose, mm. but it's worldwide. The leaders are very often old men. Our government's not like that, but but worldwide they are. Yeah, it is absolutely interesting. Well, Joy, thank you very much. That was a, a great conversation, and thank you for joining us on the Privileged Man podcast. Well, it's a real pleasure, Pete. Thank you. So thank you for tuning into the Privileged Man podcast. If you feel a resonance with our message and are keen to join a globally connected community of men committed to nurturing and elevating their mental wealth, I invite you to explore further. Visit our website, theprivilegedman.com, where you'll find enriching testimonials of men who have become a part of this empowering movement. Remember the journey to becoming a privileged man, a truly privileged man, one with elevated mental wealth, starts with your next action step. And that step could be just a click away. Thank you again for your time, and I'm looking forward to having you with us in our next episode.